Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse number 1 this morning. If you found that, stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. This morning, Romans chapter 9 says this, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. Father, this morning we lift our voices to you, just praising you for who you are and thanking you for all that you've done in us and through us, Father, thanking you for your precious Son, Jesus Christ. And this morning as we've celebrated, Fathers, as we've recognized a special graduate that I know you have a, your hand upon in the future, Father, and we'll use her for great things as we have sung worship to you, as we've done all those things, I pray that it brings you the honor and the glory that you so deserve. Now as we open your word, I ask that you speak to our hearts, Father, in a way that you may not have in weeks or days or years, that your spirit fall heavy upon this place today. And I ask, Father, for you to accomplish that, that you make very, very little of me and very much of yourself, that you may be seen for the Almighty God that you are. And we ask this today in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning as we started the book of Romans here, this section of Romans and our message for Father's Day, I'll be honest with you, I looked... I had several passages upon my heart that that God was leading me towards. And as I looked at them, I said, none of those really look like Father's Day messages. I almost went back to the book of Ephesians to pick up today in the book of Ephesians where we were. But I'll be quite honest with you. I, I, I wasn't that brave. I wasn't that brave. Does anybody happen to know where we are in the book of Ephesians? The very next few words say this, wives submit to your husbands. I just thought there was a pretty good chance that was not going to be a very good Father's Day message. <laughs> so, so we did. But, but God has so laid this message upon my heart, and it really is for fathers, but it's really for the entire church. But more importantly, this message was for your pastor. As God laid this message upon my heart, he revealed things to me within myself that needed a change. And I hope that is the message you take away this morning. That you should leave this place a different person. Fathers, if you today have children, you are a father. Men, if you don't have children but you're a part of this church, guess what? You're still a father in this church because there are those looking to you. And my question to you as I start this morning is what is the next generation going to be because of your witness? What is the next generation going to be because of what they see from us? You know, Romans uh, 9 can can really not be preached or studied if you didn't look at Romans 8. So very briefly, I'm just going to give you a rundown of Romans 8 because Paul writes the first part of, of the ninth chapter of the book of Romans looking at what he had just written in, in Romans chapter 8. And in Romans 8 verses 1 through 11, he really talks about that that we are free from an, from the indwelling of sin. He, he says in those, those verses that we're no longer bondage to that. We are no longer bondage and enslaved to sin. If we know Jesus as our Savior, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Spirit, not the nature of sin. 
Yes, we still sin, but the predominant nature of our life should be that of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, in, in the uh, 11th verse of that, that 8th chapter, he says this, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's the capital statement on the first part. He moves from that uh, 1st through 11th verse to the 12th through the 17th verse, and in those verses, he says, we are the sons of God. We're the sons of God. His theme verse follow that is the 16th verse where it says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This morning, the Holy Spirit should be welling up in your heart saying you're one of the king's children. And this morning, if you are not hearing the Holy Spirit speak to your heart and say you're one of the king's children, you may not be. Hopefully before you leave this place today, you can recognize in your heart today by the ministry of the Holy Spirit that you are one of his children because you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then he moves off to that 18th through 30th verse. The 18th through 30th verse talks about suffering. It talks about suffering. Who among us is not suffering? Anybody willing to stand up and give a witness that life is just grand for you? That's exactly what I thought. We all suffer. We all have things in our life we would like to be different. The suffering of this time, though, Paul says as he writes, has absolutely zero comparison to the glory that awaits. He says, I don't care what is happening to me right now. (laughs) I have my eyes set on heaven. The glory that awaits is so far greater than the suffering here that the suffering doesn't even matter. Matter of fact, this is where we get the famous verse there, the 28th verse of that section of of chapter 8, where it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. He works everything out in us for not our good, but for His good. And his glory. If it's for his good, it's for our good. He works those things out. So that's his theme verse there. Then he moves into 31 through 39. This is the part that you could almost hear, Paul. As he's writing these things down, it's starting to escalate in his heart. It's starting to build his heart to such a point that chapter 9 falls out. Because this 31 through 39, what he talks about is God's everlasting love. When he thinks about the fact that we're no longer a bondage to sin, that we are the sons of God, that there's suffering but there's this glory coming, what lays so heavy upon his heart is there is a mighty God that just absolutely loves us with everything that he is. He loves each of us. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He says we are conquerors through him. Who loves us? Then he makes the statement that launches him into chapter 9. And that statement is in the 38th verse and 39th verse of chapter 8. It says this. For I am persuaded, I'm confident, I'm sure, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the place you should have got Pentecostal. If you understood what he was writing... I'd go running right now, but my back would hurt even worse. I'm telling you, when he wrote that, the first three verses of chapter 9 just fell out of his pen on the paper because it so filled his heart. 
Because what was so exciting to him? See, as Paul writes this, his heart is filled with what God has done for him and for us. (laughs) What God has done for him and for us. Pastor Johnny Hunt said this about this particular passage. He said, It is only out of the understanding of a spirit-filled life of Romans 8 that you can appreciate the evangelistic heartthrob of Romans 9. He said it's only by understanding what God has done in 8 that you can understand what He's telling us we should be doing in 9. Fathers, I tell you this, and church, I tell you this, if you are not sharing the gospel with someone every waking moment of your day, you are not doing what God has called you to do. You may say, well, pastor, I'm not able to vocalize that I will live my life in such a way that others come to Christ. Hear me and hear me clearly. You are not that good of a Christian. Neither am I. Should I not use my life as an example? Absolutely. But I should use it the exact same way that Jesus used his life. Did Jesus save anybody by his walk? No, he saved everybody by the word. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Your walk should draw them to you so you can give them the Word of God in their hearts so they come to know your Jesus and come to have eternal life forever. If you're saying that you can't vocalize it, that you can't share it because you're not capable, you're telling me that your God's not capable. I'm telling you your God is able. This morning our hearts and our lives should be broken for those that are lost. And we see there as we head into the, the ninth chapter of Romans, we see how to have a heart for the lost. And the very first thing that Paul points out in chapter 9 about himself is he points out the sincerity of Paul's heart for the lost. We see that in, in verse number 1, really, just in the very first part of verse number 1. And he points out three proofs of his sincerity, of his heart for the lost. The very first proof comes in the very first part of that verse when it says, I tell the truth in Christ. The very first proof to Paul that, or to us, that Paul's heart is for the lost is he says, I tell the truth in Christ. The proof to him is from Christ. And who Christ is. See, Paul had a witness based on his relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're not sharing the gospel, I've got to ask you, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Is there any kind of relationship you've got in your life that others would be changed by? Maybe you're not sharing the gospel because you don't know Jesus. Do you realize church attendance, Sunday school attendance, being baptized 500,000 times is going to make no difference when you stand at the gates of heaven to get in? Do you realize that? You could be on the roll for 400 years. You could have attended Sunday school perfectly. You could be baptized so many times that every fish in the creek knows your name personally and you'll still find the gates of hell if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Sitting here and listening to fat boy preach the message every Sunday is not going to get you into heaven. If you get there and say, I know Pastor Roger, he's going to say, great, you're still going to hell if you don't know my son Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What Paul said, his heart for the lost is there because of what he realizes Jesus Christ did for him. And what did Jesus Christ do for him? He took him from being a wretched sinner to a glorified saved saint through what Jesus Christ did, not through anything that Paul did. His relationship was proof positive of who he was. See, For Paul had the credentials that were required to be religiously perfect. Do you remember those credentials? Actually, he did them over in Philippians. Flip the Philippians really fast. 
This message seems to be extended even as I go. Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and in verse number 3, it says this. For we are the circumcision. Oh, he starts off with the circumcision. What is the circumcision to him? Remember? He was from the Jewish community. The circumcision was proof positive he was part of the Jews, which to the Jews was proof positive they were God's people. So he starts off and says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. He says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. He says, I, I could. And Philippians 3, there in verse 4, he says, Though, you know, I could have confidence in the flesh. He says, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, he says, I more so could have confidence in the flesh. And he says this, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless. But what things are gained to me that I have counted loss for Christ? Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. What did he say? He starts off with this list. Paul lists all of his credentials that most people who are members of church and place their faith in the church, not in Christ, would list. He says, first and foremost, I'm circumcised the eighth day, he says in verse 5. For the Jews, that was important. That means he was part of the family. That means he had been baptized. He had been welcomed into the church. He'd walked the aisle. He'd shook the pastor's hand. He'd fill out the little card. His name was on the roll. That's what the circumcision meant. He says, I, I'm, I'm part of this. I've been circumcised on the eighth day, which is what the law said. He goes on to say, I'm of the stock of Israel. Not only am I circumcised, I'm of the right family. My mom and dad were Christians. My granddaddy was a Christian. My granddaddy was a pastor. I'm part of the family. He says, so I'm, I'm from Israel. He goes on to say, let's just take it a little bit further back there and just make sure you know what family I'm part of. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm of one of the 12. There's 12 tribes and I'm one of them. I'm in there. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes on to say, matter of fact, I've been called the Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's what he says in verse 5. Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, matter of fact, let me go one step further. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee. A Pharisee of the law, which he's saying, I'm a Pharisee that kept the law, knew the law, prescribed the law, explained the law to you. If anybody's getting in, it's got to be me. He goes over there and he says, matter of fact, I was zealous. I was zealous to persecute the church, those Christians. They didn't keep the law, never been circumcised. They weren't from Israel, didn't have a tribe, a bunch of Gentiles. I chased them down and killed them all. Dishonoring my God. I'm zealous. It's my way or no way. Starting to sound like the Baptist church. He goes on to say, I'm blameless in the law. All of the law I kept. There's not anything in that law you can use against me because I was blameless in the law. He throws out a list that's no different than us. You say, I keep all the Ten Commandments. I'm here every Sunday. You have a function. I'm here as a part of it. You can take up canned goods. I'd make sure mine get in the pile. You take up a special offering for someone. I throw a little money in. Uh, you're having a work day. I'll stop by and drop off drinks or help you. I'll do so. I'm right in the middle of it. <laughs> Yet he goes on to say, none of that really matters. <laughs> none of that really matters. Because then he tells us where he puts his confidence. And none of those things he listed Make his confidence list. See, the confidence he has that he's going to wind up in heaven has nothing to do with the list I just gave you. It's the next list. Starting in verse 7, he says, these are lost in Christ. These are lost in Christ. What are these? He says in verse 7, what things were gained to me? These I've counted lost for Christ. He's saying that entire list I just gave you because of Christ. 
they're lost. I have no use for those. Those make no difference. I've got Christ. He goes over there and says, all things are lost, as a matter of fact, except for knowing Christ. You're starting to see a theme. He says, Christ is my righteousness. He goes on to say, Christ is my power. He goes on to say, Christ is my fellowship when suffering comes. He goes on to say, Christ is my resurrection. Do you see he just tears religion all to pieces? He tears religion all to pieces in those few short verses. If you're policing your faith in anything other than the person of Jesus Christ and what he did upon a cross because you sinned, your destiny is a place called hell. Church membership's not going to get you there. Being a Southern Baptist will not get you there. Walking an aisle a hundred times, being baptized three thousand times will not get you there. All those things are lost in the sight of Christ. If Christ is not the center of all things for you, your destiny is a place called hell. Paul's heart was for those that were lost. He says the very first sign of that was Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ was to him. But he says there is, there's actually a, another thing that brings to his mind or to our recollection of the fact that, that he did have a heart for the lost. Not only was it the Son of God, but he also says it was his conscience there. Because he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness. See, God puts a conscience in us for a reason. He puts a conscience in us for a reason so that we know right from wrong. We know when we've done what we should and when we do what we shouldn't. And Paul says his conscience bears witness to his heart. The Holy Spirit so moves his heart that his conscience is ever sensitive to the needs of the lost around him. You see how it works? God uses the conscience to make us aware of those needs that are around us. Because of his relationship with Christ... He is a constantly aware of the work of Christ. And what is the work of Christ? Christ gives it to us in his own words. Never doubt why Jesus came. There's a lot of things going on we'll talk about on Wednesday night in the Baptist community and faith right now. But there's one reason that Jesus Christ came. It was not to demonstrate to us a perfect life. It was not to raise people from the dead. It was not to heal leprosy. It was not any of those things. There's one reason Jesus Christ came to this earth, and he said it in Luke 19.10. I came to seek and save that which is lost. And Paul's heart was for those who were lost. Paul tells us in, in Acts, matter of fact, Acts the 23rd chapter very quickly in Acts 23, he says this about his conscience when it comes to that. He says in Acts 23, verse number one, he says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, these were the guys, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, those of the church, those men who were in charge of the church and ahead of all those things who had drugged Paul before them to try to find a way to kill him, quite honestly. They drag him before him, and he says, he stands there before the council, and he says, this is them, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Paul stood before them, being accused, and he says, my conscience before my God and before you is clear. I asked you this morning, if you were called before the court to stand for being a Christian, could you say to God, my conscience, God, 
is clear. I have done those things you have asked me to do. If there's something that just came to the forefront of your mind that you realize that you have omitted doing because God has asked you to and you refused, or that you have done when God said no, that's sin. That should call you to your face before a holy God asking for forgiveness. That's called repentance. When you arise from that place to turn and never do it again. You know what's missing in the church today? A broken heart because of sin and asking for forgiveness before a holy God. You want to know what's wrong with our nation? God's people refuse to repent of their sins. How can we ask a nation to? He said if a nation will turn their heart towards him and repent of their sins, he will bless that nation. But it starts in his house. It starts in his house. Paul said, my conscience is clear. Matter of fact, it goes on in, in 2 Corinthians. In uh, 2 Corinthians, the very first chapter. And he says this. 2 Corinthians 1, verse number 12. For our boasting is this. He says, if I'm going to boast about anything, here's what I'm going to boast about. Our boasting is this. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. Paul told the church to do that it was with a clear conscience that he could say that he had conducted himself in a godly way and had, by the grace of God, treated them with love, with respect, and told them the truth. He said, it's with a clear conscience I could say that I have loved you, loved you with the love of Christ. What an awesome thought. See, the witness of Paul's heart is found in his relationship to Christ and his conscience and is also found in the Holy Spirit. He tells us there in Romans 9, it says, I tell you the truth in Christ, which was just standing in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience, which is saying his conscience, also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. See, leaning back on that Romans 8 passage that we had just briefly looked at, Paul says his sincere heart is because of a spirit-filled life. A life that is consumed by God. There was a saying that says, A conscience that is subject to the Holy Spirit is a conscience surrendered to God's Word. A conscience that is subject to the Holy Spirit is a conscience that's submitted to God's Word. How do you bring your conscience under the control of the Holy Spirit? You fill it with God's Word. Martin Luther said this, My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I ask you this morning, is your conscience captive to the Word of God? See, having a conscience subject to the Holy Spirit will either condemn you for what you're doing or it will commend you for what you're doing. If you're doing that which God has called you to do, you will be commended by the Holy Spirit. If you are doing that which God has not called you to do or refusing to do that which He has called you to do, the Holy Spirit will condemn you in your conscience. See, your conscience is your moral compass. Without a conscience that is filled with the Word of God, your moral conscience, your moral compass will be controlled by the world. And all things will be open to you instead of just the truth of the Word. See, having a conscience subject to the Holy Spirit, it either condemns you or it commends you. In 2 Timothy, as a matter of fact, 2 Timothy, two quick verses. In 2 Timothy, third chapter. The 16th verse, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in 
righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every work. He goes on and says, with that thought in mind, in the, in the fourth chapter, right below it, it says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. What does he say about the Word? He says the Word is here to change us. We aren't to search the Word to find out where the Word agrees with what we think. We're to search the Word to find out how we are to think. If we look at the Word and the Word is opposite to what we think, guess who's wrong? Us. The Bible is never wrong. If you look in the Word and the Word says something different than what you believe, you're wrong. And so am I. See, we should always approach the Word looking for it to change us. Confrontation with the Word of God and conviction by the Holy Spirit through that Word should give us a heart for Christ. And that's why we see Paul's heart, his sincere heart for the lost. But not only do we see a sincere heart for the lost, we see the sorrow of Paul's heart for the lost there in that Romans passage, that Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9 in the second verse it says that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Here's what a sincere heart for the lost leads to. It leads to sorrow in your heart for the lost. Because Paul is in Christ, his heart hurts for that which caused Christ's heart to hurt. He says we had great sorrow. If you happen to be carrying a King James Bible, the King James Bible says great heaviness instead of great sorrow. Great heaviness. It paints this picture, a picture of sorrow that just will not go away. It's not a fleeting thing. It's not there for a moment and gone. It's just heavy weight that lays upon your shoulders. Paul said his heart was consumed with sorrow for the lost. It gives the idea of this growing sorrow day by day. It's a sorrow that every day that he hasn't reached out to that person that weighs upon his heart, his heart becomes heavier and heavier, more sorrowful. It's a picture painted of of not a lessening sorrow, but a great growing sorrow in his heart. When's the last time that it was someone you know that's lost, that every day you hadn't shared the gospel with them, the weight got heavier upon your shoulders? When's the last time you went from five minutes in prayer to ten minutes in prayer to fifteen minutes in prayer to all day in prayer for them because you couldn't get it off your heart? See, can you remember back to the day that you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? For some of you, it's been quite a while. But can you remember how you just, you couldn't wait to tell somebody about this Jesus? About this experience? About how you changed your life? You couldn't wait to reach out and tell somebody the story? (laughs) Let me make a confession to you. I know we're not Catholic and we're not sitting in a booth. And don't tell me to tumble some beads and say a prayer. I've already cleared this up with God so I can confess it to you with a clear conscience. The longer I'm in the ministry of the church, the less I find myself sorrowing for the lost. Did you catch that? The longer I serve the church, the less I sorrow for the lost. You're no different than me. The longer that you're a Christian, the less your heart hurts for those who are lost. Why? Look at what I do. In the course of a week, I spend time, more and more and more time each week with the brethren. 
I spend more time ministering to the needs of the fellowship. I spend more times in prayer for you. And if I'm not careful, I become all consumed with you and forget about that guy who doesn't even know Jesus Christ. See, if I am not careful, I will get so involved in working in the church, I forget about the work of the church. And what is the work of the church? To seek and to save that which is lost. See, if you think about your Christian walk right now, the longer you walk as Christians, the more likely it is you're going to get involved in working in the church and less involved in the work of the church. Oftentimes, that shows up first in our homes. Dad shows up first in our homes. We become so consumed in taking care of all of those members of our church our family busts the gates of hell wide open. It begins in our homes. It becomes evident in our workplaces. It shows itself in our neighborhoods. It winds up that we become so busy doing the things that have to be done at the church that we let our next door neighbor go to hell. I don't care if the grass ever gets cut or the walls ever get painted. I don't care if the door ever gets unlocked. If we could share Jesus Christ with someone, put that first. Paul says he not only had this sorrowing heart, but he had a heart that was filled with grief. I think about, and it's, it's amazing this happens to fall on a day like this. I think about grief that comes to us at the loss of a loved one. This is the grief that he's talking about. At the loss of a loved one. How much grief falls upon you at the loss of a loved one? This morning, we notice a family that's hurting. We notice a family, a member of our church has passed, and some of you are grieving this morning, but nothing like the family's grieving. See, the family has felt this great loss. It's, it's a pain, this, this grief of losing a loved one, especially if it's tragic and quick. It's a grief that doesn't go away at night when you lay your head on the pillow. It's a sorrow that you just can't get to go away, even with things you've loved all your life, would not take the place. It's this continuing nagging loneliness that you can't feel. See, when you lose a loved one, you grieve, and there's no way to make that grief go away. It's a process. That's what Paul's saying. I had this great sorrow, and I had this continual grief in my heart. It's a grief that causes you to lay awake at night thinking about that lost person. It makes you go out of your way to make sure you see them so you can share the gospel with them. It makes you call them a hundred times a week, inviting them to church. It makes you do the things that the church space think is stupid, but you just know you've got to share the gospel with them. It Paul says, not only is my heart sorrowful for them, but I'm grieving as if it's lost. See, quite often as a pastor, I get this amazing phone call. People will call me up and they'll say, hey, pastor, so-and-so's in the hospital. They've got cancer. They're not going to make it long. Could you go see them? You know what they're asking me? Do you know what they're really asking me? Will you go by and make sure they're saved? They're about to die. Listen to me, church. 
you're all about to die. It's not the person with cancer. It's not the person laying in the hospital this morning. It's everybody. It's your next door neighbor. I appreciate the fact that you want them to know Jesus Christ before they leave this earth. But understand this. Your healthy 22-year-old next door neighbor that this morning's out mowing his grass because it's a pretty day can drop dead with a heart attack today. You can't call your pastor to come talk to him after he's dead. You need to share the gospel with him now. There is no tomorrow. God does not promise you tomorrow. God does not promise that family member of yours that's unsaved. He does not promise that co-worker of yours. He does not promise that neighbor that there is another day. I have to say, the only reason we probably don't share the gospel with them is because we don't believe there's a hell. If you really believed hell is what the Bible says hell is, is there anybody you know that you would want to go there? I don't have an enemy I hate that much. That they would be in a place of continual loneliness, separated from God, where there's gnashing of teeth, fire, there's torment day and night, 24-7 for all of eternity. It never goes off. You can't drink water. You can't turn it off. You can't turn the air conditioner up. It's torment forever. Is there anybody you hate that bad that you want them to go to hell? I've got to say, the only reason you won't share the gospel with us is because you don't believe there's a hell. Let me break the news to you. If you don't believe there's a hell, you can't believe there's a heaven. Because the only authority you have to believe there's a heaven is in the belief that there's a hell. Because there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. And those two are interlinked. You can't believe in one without believing in the other. How bad is hell? Remember the story from Luke Luke chapter 16. It's a story of, of this guy named Lazarus and a rich man. Do you remember they pass away? Lazarus goes into the bosom of Abraham, speaking of heaven. The rich man goes into a place called Hades, speaking of hell. Do you remember the man at Hades says, Can he please, can he please just bring a drop of water, just one little drop of water, put it on my tongue. I'm in such torment. Can he please? And God said, no. Abraham said, no. Not going to happen. There's a great gulf between us. He's not coming to you. You got what you deserved. You chose it. You're there. Over with. What was his next request? What was his next question? We're out of time, so I'm not going to read it. Go home and read Luke 16, 27 and 28. He says this. Then do me a favor, Abraham. Send Lazarus to my house. Send Lazarus to my house because I've got these five brothers. Hey, God, I don't want them to experience this. If someone would come back from the dead and tell them that this place exists, they wouldn't want to come. Let me tell you, church, somebody's already come back from the dead and told you that hell exists and there's a place called heaven and his name's Jesus Christ. And you need to share him with those out there telling them there is a place called hell. And we've got words from the Bible from a man saying that you don't want to come here. He was so concerned. It wasn't with having his friends to have a party like we hear people say, oh, we're going to have a big party in hell. No, this guy is proof positive that even if your brothers come, it's not going to be a good place. He so desired for his family to not show up. He said, please send Lazarus to tell them about this place. You see, Paul had this heart, this heart that was sorrowful for the lost. So he had a sincere heart for the lost, a sorrowful heart for the lost. And very quickly, we see Paul's sacrificial heart for the lost. This is where the rubber meets the road. 
See, Paul was willing to give everything he held dear to see the lost come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Everything. He was even willing to give up his place in Jesus Christ. This is an amazing statement if you think about it. For he says this in verse 3 of chapter 9 of Romans. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. The word accursed in the Greek there is anathema. What does it mean? It can be defined excommunicated, it can be defined cursed, banned, thrown out. The greatest definition, I believe, of anathema is damned. Paul said, I myself wish that I could be damned from Christ. What's he saying? He's written chapter 8 saying, I know that I'm a son of God because of what Christ did for me. I'd be willing for you to make my assignment in hell if it'll save my brother. When is the last time you had a heart that was so sorrowful, so sincere for the loss that you were willing to sacrifice your place in heaven for your brother. That we know that he can't do that. You cannot give up your place in heaven for your brother. But he's speaking from a heart just as God was speaking from Christ's heart when he knelt in the garden and said, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. See, there was no other way. And Jesus knew that. But in his humanity, he wanted it to pass. Paul said, if there is no other way, take my Christianity, give it to him. I don't want him to go to hell. We know that we can't do that in place, but what can we do? We can share the good news of Jesus Christ. We can have the same hearty head where Jesus said, if there's any other way, let it pass. If not, let your will be done because your will is perfect. And what was his will? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not ever, ever, ever perish, but should have everlasting life. We should be telling that story to everybody. Why? Because how does Christ's heart hurt for the lost? How did Christ hurt for the lost? He hurt with two outstretched arms with nails driven through them. With two feet that were crossed together that had a spike driven through them that he had to push up on those that spike at his feet to get a breath. He hurt with a spear that was thrust through his side with a crown that was shoved down on his head. With watching the men and women that he had created spit upon him and slap him and curse him. How did Christ hurt for the world? By giving his life. Everything he had. He stepped from the very portals of glory for your sin. He gave up heaven for you. When God looked around heaven and said, I need a lamb. Jesus said, here I am. Send me. You see, he was willing to give up his place with Christ. But he was also very willing to live out what he believed about Christ. He was willing to leave out what he believed about Christ. You see, most people would say the hardest people in the world to witness to are our family. Would you agree? See, I disagree. I disagree. And I'll tell you why. 
Do you think I have to explain to my mama that I'm saved? She no longer has to figure out how to get me to bed when I come home drunk at 3 o'clock in the morning. She no longer has to hear a mouth of her son that sounds like a sailor. She no longer has to see the self-centered me that I was. Mom can take one look at me and know there's something different. It's not hard to share the gospel with someone when Christ lives through you and has truly made a difference in your life. The easiest place to share the gospel should be with those that know you the best. If you can't share the gospel with the one that knows you the best, it's because you've never been changed. I don't know if a single person has ever come to know Jesus Christ, truly come to know Jesus Christ, and continue to live like he was before. Your life should so draw those that are close to you that they should be willing to hear what you have to say. You see, Paul said he wished himself a curse for his brethren. Fathers, it starts at home. Sharing the gospel starts at home. You don't need to get on an airplane and fly to Guatemala. You don't need to go to Russia. You don't need to go to the uttermost parts of the world if you're not willing to share the gospel in your own house. It goes from there to your neighbors, your friends, your associates. If you're not willing to share the gospel with them, don't sign up for a mission trip. Because if you're not willing to share at home, you'll be no good sharing it abroad. You see, he says that he wished his brothers could be saved. See, his heart was broken for those that were closest to him. Those that knew him the best. Those that knew so much about him, it was evident that Christ had made a difference. If you're truly saved, and if you have a heart for the things that God has a heart for, then you'll have a sincere heart for the lost, you'll have a sorrowful, grieving heart for the lost, and you'll have a sacrificial heart for the lost. My question to you this morning, what's your heart for? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.